Good morning, church. I told the first service my wife is away with our oldest daughter on a mother-daughter retreat this weekend, which means um, I'm in charge of the five kids that are left, which means we barely made it here alive this morning. But we did make it here alive. So that's the big, I got the biggest job done already. That's great, and uh, can't wait for my wife to get back, though. And so I'll take this opportunity to say, you moms out there are amazing. You are amazing. So thank you for being amazing people. All right, let's turn, though, in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue our study through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 12. title of our sermon today is Confronting Unbelief. Confronting Unbelief. We've inherited certain assumptions in our day from the Enlightenment. We have inherited certain assumptions, uh, including the likes that we believe we are free. We believe we are free to believe what we want to believe. We like to think we reserve the right to believe or not to believe, but Scripture describes not believing as a very real sin with very real consequences. We like to think that we are free to believe what we want to believe, but that's like a fish believing it is free to jump out of the fishbowl. A fish is free to believe that, should it choose to, but if it acts on that belief, it does so to its own peril. We believe we are free to believe what we want to believe, but we are not as free as we think. Our passage is Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 45. Please follow along. This is God's holy word, and it is eternally true. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, being Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of his word. 
In our passage, scribes who were ordained men and the Pharisees who were devout laymen demand that Jesus performs a sign for them. They want a sign from him to verify his claims. They want a sign to verify his identity. He said he was a prophet. They wanted him to prove it. He said he was bringing the kingdom of God. They wanted him to prove it. He claimed to be the son of man, the Messiah, and they wanted him to prove it. They demanded a sign, and in one sense, this was perfectly reasonable. In one sense, this made complete sense. When prophets claimed to bring messages to Israel, God usually confirmed it in one of two ways. Either he would give them a prophecy that would be shortly fulfilled, thus proving they are a prophet, or he would give them a power to perform a miracle, thus proving they were a prophet. Moses performed great miracles. Elijah did great signs. Elisha did great wonders. So in one sense, there's nothing unusual, there's nothing un unreasonable about their request except for this one little thing. There's nothing unusual, there's nothing unreasonable for them to ask for this sign except for one little detail. That being the whole truckload of signs Jesus has already performed. All the wonders Jesus has already done. They wanted a sign from heaven, and the irony of ironies here is Jesus has already given them plenty of signs. So they're saying, Jesus, give us a sign. Guys, weren't you there when I cleansed the lepers? Jesus, give us a sign. You were with me when I healed the, the mute, the lame, and the blind. Jesus, give us a sign. We want to see one. Guys, you have seen me cast out the demons. The problem is not their request for a sign or their desire for a sign, but it is their rejection of all the prior signs. The problem isn't their desire for a sign, but it's their denying of all the signs Jesus has already done as if those weren't enough. The problem isn't the expectation of a sign. The problem is their unbelief in the signs he had already shown them. Jesus had already given them all the evidence they needed. Jesus had already given them all the proof they needed. The problem wasn't a lack of evidence. The problem was their refusal to be convinced by the evidence that had been given. Now, it's here that we need to have a little aside. This is where we need to have a little talk to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Um, like many of you, yesterday I went and saw my kids play soccer, and, and you notice every now and then the coach take a kid aside and give him some pointers or give him some thoughts, give him some feedback, make sure he's got his head in the game, whatever it is. So this is an aside kind of like that. We need to make sure, as we're talking about unbelief, that we actually understand what biblical belief is. We need to make sure we understand what faith is. Lots of people think that faith is believing in something without evidence. That's why we call it a blind leap of what? Faith! It's a blind leap into the darkness, believing without any evidence, without any knowledge, you know, that something's going to be there to catch us, that there'll be a ledge on the other side. And a lot of people think that faith is that, belief without evidence. Uh, the atheist, Richard Dawkins, so note that, atheist, he's an unbeliever, but he would like to define belief for you. He says, faith is belief in spite of or because of the lack of evidence. 
Faith is belief in spite of, or even perhaps because of the lack of evidence, according to an unbeliever. And yet that's how many of us think about faith. No better than an atheist does. But that's not how the Bible defines faith. Let me try to illustrate uh, what I'm saying and what the Bible teaches. If you remember the uh, third Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that was back when they were still pretty decent movies. That was the third one. It was the one with Sean Connery who played Indiana's dad. And they were out on a hunt for what? Who remembers? The Holy Grail. That's right. The cup Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. And to get it, there were these obstacles they had to get past. There were these tests they had to pass. And one of them was a leap of faith. There was a bridge across a cavern that was, that was so well hidden, so cleverly disguised, that you couldn't see it. You had to step out in faith. It looked like you were going to fall, but actually you were going to step out onto a bridge that was concealed. And that's what people think the Bible means by faith. But if you remember in the movie, and if you never saw it, you can go Google it later. Don't do it now. Watch YouTube later. You can go and watch it. Indiana Jones gets across the, top, across the side of the bridge. He grabs a handful of sand and he throws it back so that you can see now the bridge. And that is what biblical faith is like. It's based on proof. The Greek word for faith is pistis. The Greek word for belief is pisteo. Pistis refers to conviction. It refers to certainty. It refers to proof that can be relied upon, that can be trusted in. Proof that can be trusted in. Pisteo refers to uh, something that you believe to be true, you consider to be true, and therefore trustworthy. Uh, It's something that you are convinced is right, and therefore you put your confidence in it. So faith is not belief without evidence. It's trust with complete confidence. It's conviction with proof. The classic example of this from Scripture is doubting Thomas. The Bible tells us he refused to believe the witness of those who had seen Jesus resurrected. He wouldn't believe until Jesus appeared to him and showed Thomas his wounds from the crucifixion. Thomas, look at my hands. Thomas, look at my side. Put your hand into it. Touch it. There was proof. Only then did Thomas confess his faith. Only after he had seen evidence. And Jesus said to him, you have believed because you saw me. You believed because you saw... Wait, I thought belief was a leap of dark into the dark. No, no, no. You believed because you saw the evidence. You saw the proof. You trusted in what you are seeing now. Thomas's faith was trust based on evidence, not the lack of evidence. Biblical faith is walking across an invisible bridge who someone went before you and threw sand back over it so you could see that the bridge is actually there. Now, we don't think about faith like this. We don't think about faith like this because it's not how we remember getting saved. It's not what it felt like when we became Christians. None of us here today were argued into confessing Jesus Christ by looking at the evidence and saying, well, the evidence is so compelling, the evidence is so astounding, I simply just have to get rid of my sin and go after Jesus. 
None of us came to faith that way. Looking at the evidence may have influenced your coming to faith. Looking at the evidence may have persuaded you to some degree. But I guarantee you, the evidence did not make you want to get rid of your sin. That was a supernatural work of the Spirit. That was a supernatural work of grace in our lives. Listen, we were saved when the Spirit, this is what He did, He opened the eyes of our heart to see that Jesus is more trustworthy than our sin is. He opened our heart and our eyes to see that Jesus is more trustworthy than we ourselves are. It felt like a blind leap of faith, but actually the Spirit was enabling us to see our sin for what it is and to see Jesus for who He is. And actually, looking at the evidence, the choice was pretty clear to us. I'll take Him over this. Thank you very much. It felt like a leap of faith, but there was more to it than that. We began by seeing Jesus, and as we continue to grow in faith, as we continue to grow in Christianity, we just continue to look at the evidence and become more and more convinced. We come to find that we have a very reasonable faith. We see this again illustrated for us when the Apostle Paul spoke to the philosophers on Mars Hill. He did not tell them, guys, you need to believe without any evidence. Rather, he proclaimed that there was a day of judgment coming, and the proof of what he was saying, the proof of the gospel, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Acts 17, 30 and 31. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance. He has given proof. Pistis, same word, belief in this. Here is your proof. What? What is the proof? He has given proof, assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. Paul offered them evidence that they could consider. Paul gave them something that they could look into, something that they could verify, something they could research, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, on that, you can believe what I'm saying. We'll come back to the resurrection in a minute. That was the aside about faith, because we need to understand faith correctly. Returning to Matthew chapter 12, the problem here is the scribes and the Pharisees demanded a sign, and the problem was not their desire for a sign, but again, it was the rejection of all the signs Jesus had already done. He had given them proof. He had demonstrated evidence for them. They looked at it, and they said, just not enough. They rejected what he had given them, and they demanded still more. Jesus says here, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Seeks for, the word here means to continually look for. It means to constantly strive after. So this generation was evil, and this generation was adulterous, because they continually sought for more and more and more signs. They wanted more and more and more evidence. They were never willing to accept what God had presented to them through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus confronts their unbelief by giving them a sign, one more sign, making a claim, and issuing a warning. We begin with point number one. Jesus confronts our unbelief by giving a sign. He confronts our unbelief by giving a sign. 
Look with me again at verses 39 and 40. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus says here, he will give them no sign except the very greatest sign. He will give them no sign except for the one sign to convince them all, the sign of Jonah. Jonah, as you'll remember, probably, is a very short book in the Old Testament that records a very famous story. Jonah was an Israelite, Jonah was a prophet, and God gave him a message that Jonah did not want to deliver. The message was one of salvation for the city of Nineveh, Uh, If it would repent of its evil ways, God would save it. The message was one of deliverance, but Jonah did not want to deliver it because he despised Nineveh and because Jonah knew that God was more merciful than he. So Jonah fled away. Jonah got in a boat. He sailed away from Nineveh until God sent a storm to sink the ship. God chased Jonah down. He sent a storm to sink the ship. Jonah knew God was after him. God knew, or Jonah knew that God was chasing him. And so he told the men in the ship, this is all my fault. This is all because of my sin. So if you want the storm to stop, throw me overboard. And they looked at the storm and they looked at the man. And they said, over you go. And so over he went and then down he went. And then something came along. Children, what came along? What came along? A great big fish. And what did it do? It swallowed him. That's right. Jonah 1.17, And the Lord appointed a great fish. I should point there. It doesn't say whale, although we all think of a whale. Could have been a whale, but we don't know it was a whale. The Bible just says a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Interestingly, in the next verses, um, Jonah prays to God from inside the belly of that fish. And he cries out to God from inside the belly. He says that he's crying out from the belly of Sheol. He cries out from the belly of Sheol. What is Sheol? Sheol is the place of the dead. Sheol is the place where the dead people go. Uh, In Greek, it was Hades. So the point is, he's saying, I'm crying out from the place because I know I'm as good as dead here. I'm inside a fish at the bottom of the sea. I know I'm as good as dead. So he cries out to God for salvation. And what does the fish do? Kids, what do the fish do? What's the fish do? What? Spit him out of his mouth. That's right. If you ever swallow a yucky prophet, what do you do? You spit him out. <laughs> Better out than in, right? That's how it goes with anyone who's in disobedience. And so it spits him out because God told him to. Now, take us back to Matthew 12. Back in Matthew 12, verse 40 again. Where Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So we're given a time and a location. Three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, which is the belly of Sheol, the place as good as dead. And then he cries out for God to be merciful to him, and he's essentially resurrected. God had the fish spit him out. And that is the sign of Jonah that Jesus will give them. He says he knows from the story of Jonah that he too will be three days and three nights, there's the time, in a location, the heart of the earth. He will be in Sheol. He will be in the place of the dead. He'll be buried in a tomb in the heart of the earth, but after the three days and after the three nights, he will resurrect to new life. Like Jonah, Jesus will come back from the dead, and that is the sign that he will give to them.
Jesus' resurrection is his greatest sign. Jesus' resurrection is his most convincing proof. Whole books have been written on this subject. Whole books and many, many books examining the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you're interested in, in studying the historical reliability of this, uh, this event, more than an accessible work you can use, an accessible book you can get a hold of is Lee Strobel's The Case for Easter. Uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Easter. It's under 100 pages, very accessible. He kind of goes over the evidence. But I'll give you a taste. Here are a few of the proofs and evidences for the historical reliability of Jesus. These are the things that, that not just religious scholars look at. These are things that just good old secular historians are going to look back to try to understand what's really true uh, that happened in history. And these are the things that stick out. To begin with, there's the empty tomb, which Jesus' own enemies didn't deny. Jesus' own enemies didn't deny. They tried to explain it away. They tried to say the body was stolen or something, but they never denied the tomb was actually empty. Second, there's the testimony of hundreds of people who saw him. The Bible says hundreds of people have saw him. On one occasion, more than 500. They all saw him, and the point is they were all available for testimony. You could go and question any of them. And yet, no record survives that says that any of them or lying, or recanted, or anything. Third, there's the torture and execution of most of all of Jesus' closest disciples. They were tortured and they were executed for their faith, and it strains, I couldn't say this word in first service, credulity, I had it in my, exactly. Say it again. We are charismatic, so this could be me trying to speak in tongues, but I don't think it's that. I can't do it. You just, you, it's just, it's ridiculous to say, there we go, I'll just say that. It's ridiculous to say that they would be tortured and die for something that they knew they had made up. That's a brief flyover of just three of the historical arguments. You can go into a lot more detail. I'll give you another one. Another one is the fact that the first to discover the empty tomb were all women. And this is historically very significant because women could not serve as witnesses in court uh, in that day. Women could not, could not serve as, as, as witnesses, as you know, test, reliable testimonies uh, in public opinion in that day. And so put yourself in the shoes of the gospel writers. If you wanted to make up a story that you hoped to convince everybody was true, who was the last person you would pick to be your first witnesses? You wouldn't have picked women. But Jesus did, because he's not worried about that. And the authors all tell us that, because they're not worried about trying to convince us, they're worried about telling us the truth. They're worried about giving us history. You see, the evidence is all there. Jesus' resurrection is an historical fact. If you can say anything is a historical event, you could say it about this one. And yes, that means we believe in miracles here. That means we believe in miracles here, right? We believe in miracles here, just like evolutionists do. Wait, what did he just say? Just like evolutionists do? That's right, just like evolutionists do, because evolutionists believe that life comes from death too. 
Right? Evolutionists believe that inanimate matter all of a sudden jumped the chasm and became animate one day. They believe that unconscious things somehow became conscious beings one day. They believe that life came out of death. The evolutionist believes, and that is the operative phrase here, they are believing this happened, and they believe it happened all by itself. You see, they believe in a miracle that they stand on from which they can declare there's no such things as miracles. To which we should all say, okay, but what are you standing on? What are you standing on? There really are miracles, and Jesus really did resurrect. The tomb really was empty, and still is, and this really is Jesus' greatest sign. It is his surest proof. The evidence is all there, and as it's been said, this is evidence that demands a verdict. Jesus confronts our unbelief by giving us a sign. Now, the use of this is not just to convince us. The use of this is not just some kind of apologetic uh, argument we should have. The use of this is every time we find ourselves crying out like the father in Mark 9 who says, I believe, help my unbelief. In your struggles, in your times of of suffering, you feel the same way. I believe, but help my unbelief. When the going gets tough, you cry out, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's when the old scribe and Pharisee that we're looking at in this passage, that's when that old scribe and Pharisee is going to try to creep up inside of you so that you go to Jesus and say, I wish to see a sign from you. God, I'm struggling here. Give me a sign. God, it's hard. Give me a sign. And God in his kindness does sometimes. But I want you to see here, unbelief says that what God has already done through Jesus is not enough. Unbelief says what God has already given us in Jesus is not enough. Unbelief says the sign of Jonah, the truth of the gospel, is no longer enough for me. And this is why Jesus calls unbelief in our passage adultery. He's talking about spiritual adultery. Because it means we claim to worship God, but then we demand from Him whatever it is we want. We demand from Him to do something for us. Jesus confronts our unbelief with the sign of Jonah. He says, my resurrection validates my authority. My empty tomb proves my power. And my resurrection from the dead, where I gave my life for you, proves my love for you. Having accepted the gospel, we never move on from the gospel. Having believed the sign of Jonah, we don't have to demand another from God. He has given us already all that we need for faith and godliness. Only we must take the sign and exercise our faith. Point number one, Jesus confronts our unbelief by giving us a sign. Point number two, Jesus confronts our unbelief by making a claim. He confronts our unbelief by making a claim. Verses 41 and 42, Jesus claims that something greater has come. Something greater 
has come. And his point is the scribes and Pharisees already have in front of them all that they need to see and believe. So he first compares himself to Jonah. He first compares himself to Jonah in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, look at this. Watch out. Take care. Notice something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah came speaking the word given to him by God. Jesus is the word of God. Jonah went to those he hated. Jesus comes to those he loves. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish for the sins he committed. Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth for the sins others committed. Jonah was rescued out of a place like death. Jesus was resurrected from the place of death. Jonah preached impending judgment. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jonah brought the truth. Jesus brought grace and truth. Jonah was a man of God. Jesus is the son of God. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So something greater than Jonah is here. And then second, Jesus compares himself to Solomon, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, notice this, watch out, pay attention, something greater than Solomon is here. Jonah traveled a great distance to take his message to Nineveh. But the queen of the south traveled even further to find the wisdom she sought after. This is a reference to the queen of Sheba in 1 King chapter 10. There we read that when she heard of Solomon's great wisdom, she traveled all the way to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. She tested him with hard questions, but Solomon passed the test. He answered every question she had to him so that she declared, I have not even heard the half of all your wisdom. She declared, your wisdom far surpasses everything that I have ever heard about. And Jesus declares something greater than Solomon. Is here. Solomon had wisdom based on the law of Moses. Here is one greater than Moses, and he speaks truth. Jesus confronts the unbelief of his generation by making a claim that something greater than both Jonah and Solomon was here. Therefore, the men of Nineveh and therefore the queen of the south will both rise up on the last day and condemn that wicked generation for their unbelief. They believed with shadows. They believed with very little information. They believed with the little that they saw. But here was this generation of Jesus who had the full-blown picture. They saw it in 3D and all color. They saw Jesus, one greater than Jonah. Jesus, one greater than Solomon. And yet they did not believe. And their condemnation will be great. They saw Jesus in his glory on earth. How much more are we responsible this side of the cross, and this side of the resurrection. How much more are we responsible for what we believe about Jesus? Do we not have an even greater responsibility to believe in Jesus than those did in Jesus' own day? The men in Jesus' day bore a very great responsibility to receive him, but if they did so, how much more do we? 
His resurrection proves he is who he claimed to be, and it proves that he accomplished all that he said he would accomplish. This side of Jesus' death and resurrection, that means there can be no indifference about Jesus. There can be no neutrality about Jesus. There, there can be no lukewarmness towards Jesus. Either you receive him as the greatest prophet, like he claimed to be, as the greatest king, like he claimed to be, as the only savior, as he claimed to be, or you reject him. And this is the question God puts before some of you today. Some of you are here, and you have not put your faith in Jesus. And putting off Jesus is denying Jesus. You're either with him or against him, we saw a few weeks ago. You're either for him or against him. You either believe in him or you don't. You either receive his claims or you reject them. There's no middle ground. It's as C.S. Lewis so famously put it. You can reject Jesus as a liar or a lunatic, or you can accept him as Lord and God. The decision is yours. But what you cannot do is call him something patronizing like great moral teacher or good man. He did not leave that option open to us, and he did not intend to. Everyone must make a decision about Jesus. He confronts our unbelief with incredible claims. Point number three, then. Point number three, Jesus confronts our unbelief by issuing a warning. Jesus confronts our unbelief by issuing a warning. These last verses in our passage are not a manual on demonology. Though at first they may seem like they're not connected at all, actually what they are is a story Jesus told to warn about what happens to anyone who continues in a state of unbelief. So look again with me at verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The emphasis in this story is on the heart of a person staying empty. If nothing fills it, then its final state will be worse than its first. So the story is, before the exorcism, there was a person filled with one demon. But then they were, the demon was cast out, the demon was sent away, it went flying into this waterless places, seeking rest, could find none. So the house was empty, the house was clean, the house was swept, the heart was clean, the heart was empty, the heart was swept. Uh, but then the evil spirit comes back, finds it empty, uh, it's not been filled, there's no residence in this home, and so this looks like a great party place, so he grabs eight of his friends, and, or seven of his friends, and the eight of them move back in, and it's worse than at first. Jesus' point is this, that with his coming to Israel, a great cleansing has occurred. With the coming of Jesus Christ, a great cleansing has occurred. He's literally exercised demons from the land. He's been healing the sick. He's teaching them the truth of the law. He's teaching them grace and truth. He's cleaning out the house, but unless they fill their hearts with faith in God, then their final state will be worse than their first. 
then it'll all come back and fill it worse than it was before. Now, I already appealed to those of you who have not put your faith in Jesus to do so. Jesus demands that you make a verdict on his claims. But what about those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ? What about those of you here today, which is most of us, who are Christians? Where are you in unbelief in your life? Where are you in unbelief in your life? Because Jesus does not want you to stay in unbelief, but he wants to move you into greater faith. Where is unbelief in your life? If you need help finding it, if you need help locating it, gee, Jace, I don't know. I'm not sure I have any. <laughs> give, me, give me five minutes in a room. Give me two minutes in a room with you. We'll find something, I'm sure. But let me help you. Unbelief often looks like trying to make a deal with God. Unbelief often looks like the very same thing these scribes and Pharisees were doing. So unbelief is those places in your life where you try and make a deal with God. Lord, I will support this church financially once you provide financially for me. Lord, I will discipline my children according to your word once you turn their hearts towards me. Lord, I will live with my wife with understanding just as soon as she starts respecting me. Lord, I will forgive that person. I will forgive them even for that thing they did again just as soon as they humble themselves towards me. Lord, I will give you my children. Like Abraham, I will put them on the altar. I will give them to you, Lord, just as soon as you save them. Just as soon as you save them. Lord, I will dig into your word. I will get up earlier and I will study your scriptures just like I know I'm supposed to as soon as you make my life a little less crazy. Lord, I'll share the gospel with my neighbor. I'll share the gospel with my coworker just as soon as you get them to ask me about church. Just as soon as you get them to ask me about my faith. Lord, I will give up that secret delight in my soul, I will give up that secret sin that nobody knows about ex except you. Just as soon as you provide something else to occupy my heart. Just as soon as you start to satisfy me in another way. You see, unbelief barters with God. Christ too. We've seen your signs, Jesus. Show us another. Unbelief barters with God because unbelief does not want to live by faith. It wants to live by what it can see. But look at the marriage. Look at the marriage that's lived like that. A bartering unbelief faith. Look at the marriage that's been like that for 10 years. And you tell me, if they're not worse today than they were when they began. Look at the kids whose parents exercised little faith throughout their parenting. Look at the Christian who has lived with a secret sin for a long time, and now they're cut off from others. Now they don't know how to have deep friendships in the Lord. Now they're alone in a crowd. 
their final state is certainly worse than their first. And Jesus warns us to watch out, to be on guard, lest this lead us down the path to fall away from the living God. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians to warn us against the very real danger of unbelief. Hebrews was written to warn us against falling away from the living God. But wait a minute, you say. Wait a minute, Jason. I thought you believed in the perseverance of the saints. I thought you believed that once saved, always saved. I thought you believed, Jace, in the eternal security of Christians. I do believe that. I do believe the Bible teaches that you cannot lose your salvation like you can lose your car keys, which we should all be grateful for, right? Especially those of us who lose our car keys regularly. We know what that's like. I do believe the Bible teaches we can't lose our salvation like we can lose our car keys. Why is that? Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6. Why? Well, because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ or God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Why is that? Because he keeps his sheep. His sheep. He keeps them. John 10. The reasons you can't lose your salvation is because God does not lose you. But it's your perseverance that ultimately proves your faith. It's your perseverance that ultimately proves you really are saved. If someone comes to you and says to you, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know if you are a Christian? Don't say this to them. Well, you see, some years ago, well, you see, back when I was in college, I confessed faith in Jesus Christ. Some years ago, I was baptized, and I know that I'm a Christian because I have confessed faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Don't say that, because good grief, how many people confess that in our country, and we know they're not all Christians? A confession of faith is not the same thing as the assurance of faith. One can confess their faith and it not be real. One can confess they are Christians and even think they are Christians and not actually be Christians. The confession of faith is not the assurance of faith. No, you don't point to your confession for assurance. You point to your perseverance for assurance. You point to the trials you've endured by faith. How do you know you're really a Christian? Well, you point to the sins you've gained ground on by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is your assurance that you're really saved. You see, it's your perseverance in faith that ultimately proves your faith is genuine. And that's why the author of Hebrews warns us against continuing in unbelief. Warns us against continuing in unbelief. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers. Take care. Take care of this, brothers, people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A couple weeks ago, we talked about 
coming to the point in our sin where there is no return. Crossing a line that we cannot see, but realizing only after we've crossed it that we never can get back. And that's something of what this passage is talking us. Sin is deceiving. Sin hides from us. The thing about sin is, is you often don't know you're sinning because it's deceiving you. And the scary part about that is when sin is deceiving you, when you are committing sin, you're hardening your heart. You're hardening your heart in unbelief. You're hardening your heart against God. And that can settle, that hardness can get so hard that there is no softening. There is no going back. This is a very serious warning. And notice, it lasts for as long as today is called today. This is a very serious warning for every day as long as it's called today. Which means you can have the days not called today off. You give those days off, but every day that's called today means you got to be on your guard. It means you got to take care. Which means you have to take care every day. Every day. Unbelief is a daily danger. We all struggle with it. And we never know when it might get the upper hand. When it might deceive us and lead us astray from the living God. So we have to take care. We have to watch out. And we have to watch out for each other. Did you get that up in verse 13? Exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day. That means to guard against unbelief in your life, you must have other people in your life who can exhort you in your faith. We're not talking about friends that you can talk about sports with. We're not talking about friends that you can talk about activities or, or, or parenting or mothering over. We're talking about friends who can actually get into your heart and exhort your faith to continue on, to believe the promises of God, to not give up, to persevere. You need exhortation like that. How often? Every day. Every day. Do you have it every day? Do you have it every day? Here's the thing. Some of you hear that and you think, Ugh, I need to get some more. Some of you hear that and you say, it's not that serious. Some of you hear this and you say, this won't happen to me. I mean, I don't have that, but this won't happen to me. And if you can hear me, I'm telling you, your heart is already hardened. You're already not taking God's word as true. You're already discounting yourself. Your heart is already hardened. Humble yourself. Look, look around this room. I mean, really, you can. Look around this room as I'm talking and see your friends and see people you know and see your family, see some visitors you don't know, see some people you've been meaning to get you know, across the room and talk to for a while. Listen, what this passage means is every one of us here are needy people in need of community, in need of friendships, in need of exhortation. You need it, and everyone you're looking at needs it. They need it from you. And so that's why we have community groups here. That's why we structure everything, our lives around communities, because we want people in community. And I hope every one of you will be in community group and regularly be attending, and that your community groups get down to this level. You're exhorting each other in the faith one day, and not just having Bible studies. We want to get down into the hearts like this. But listen, I'm telling you, community groups, they're great, they're good, we, but they only go as far as a community group can go. 
Just because you're in community group does not mean, listen, just because you go to community group does not mean these people are your friends. Right? Right? I mean, just because you go to community group does not mean they're your friends. I mean, they're, they're friends like your friends on Facebook, but they're not real friends. Community group gives you a structure, but you need to develop real friends in the faith who can get down and exhort you, and whom you can get down to their hearts and exhort them. Community groups only go so far. You need brothers and sisters in arms. Everybody around you needs this, and you need this. And Jesus confronts our unbelief by giving us this warning, because he loves us. And he doesn't wish any of us to fall away. So in conclusion, here it is. We like to think we're free to believe what we want when we want to. But we do so to our own peril. Unbelief is a very real sin with very real consequences. But our great hope is Jesus is a very real Savior. Not wanting any of us to perish, he confronts our unbelief with the sign of Jonah and says, you can bank your faith on this. Not wanting any of us to perish, he confronts our unbelief with a claim that we cannot be indifferent to. Not wanting any to perish, he confronts our unbelief with a very caring warning. Watch out, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hymns. Hymns. Haste thee on then from grace to glory, armed by faith, and we there yet. For it'll all be right there. That's the end we're all laboring towards. But we're not. Unbelief. There's unbelief in all of us. We confess our sins, God. Pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your presence. Pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your presence. That you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your presence. You can create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your presence. Create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your presence, or take create in us a clean heart, 
and renew within us a right spirit. We ask that you would not cast us from your presence or take your us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but by Jesus you would restore us to the joy of your salvation and that you would uphold us with a willing spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I invite you to stand now.